And so we might say this is an experience of the void. Florida was one of the last states to close down and one of the first states to open up. And while the rest of the country is still freaking out, especially in blue states, look at this. I'm at a bar restaurant. We're all having a good time. Not a single face mask. It's not that bad, guys. That's Rogan O'Hanley, better known as DC Drano live streaming from a Florida bar restaurant in the spring of 2020. O'Hanley is one of the most influential right-wing media martyrs today. He currently has over 1.8 million Instagram followers, and before his suspension from Twitter, over several hundred thousand followers on that platform. O'Hanley is one of many people who profit from a business model of victimization. This model of victimization doesn't just appear overnight. Its roots trace back to the birth of reality television, YouTube's early community standards, and borrows from the conventions of professional wrestling. Welcome to the Digital Void Podcast's special three-part series, Media Martyrs, where over the course of three special episodes, we'll be exploring the history and impact of media martyrs and the industries that created and sustained them. Okay. All right, Josh, today we are going to be doing the beginning of a three-part investigation, I guess if you want to call it that, a story about what we're seeing now is what I would consider like an epidemic of victimhood grifting. And I think we're at a point where we've the uh, far-right grifters have lost their center, their center being the, the Trump that was always the, the locus of all of this, this concept. And I think we have to really have a good conversation about how media, new media, alternative media, and all these systems interact to give power to people who really wave the flag of media martyrdom as their distinct cause celebre of how they want to be known as, as we go into the 2020s. And I I think this research and this investigation is is important because for what we do on our, our project is that we're really filling in this gap of like where... We understand media, and I think what we don't talk about enough is that this, there is this meta space which is packed with emotions, and the emotions are usually the, I, I'd hate to say that they're, they're the lowest hanging fruit, but they really are. They're the, the anger that drives behind the scenes, and it's the anger that we've been talking about as a main conversation for many months now, that we're feeling disenfranchised, disconnected, and helpless in the face of major problems, but from the pandemic to politics. And in order to confront these major problems, we could directly address them, but it's hard. So in order to, for some people to directly address them, victimhood or blame or uh, some sort of way of uh, renegotiating their space online is what's been happening. And I really think it's time to, to, to talk about it. So we're really going to be talking about something that uh, over the last decade I've called media martyrdom. And media martyrdom is the idea that you have to be victimized for your following to basically cohere around you and see you as the martyred hero, somebody whose voice has been silenced by the mainstream media. That's somebody who can't be out there. And that martyrdom is a fallacy. It is made up. It is created. In many ways, it's self-inflicted. And it's really important for us to kind of reverse engineer where we're at today and look at all the steps that it took us to get here. So first, I think we should start on January 6th. (laughs) 
January 6th was a pretty bad day for DC Drano. DC Drano claimed that morning that America has been besieged by a socialist insurrection, and there is only one man who can save this country from plunging into the abyss. By 1.30 p.m. on January 6th, D.C. Drano posted a video of hundreds of Trump supporters at the Million Patriot March, which you can hear the irony there, who had come to, come to fight for America and a president that fights for us, history. However, D.C. Drano's tone changed soon after, as we all know, when a massive seditious insurrection occurred at the U.S. Capitol. D.C. Drano... The, uh, upon seeing a man adorned in an animal pelt and a horned hat said, do these look like Trump supporters or leftist agitators disguised as Trump supporters? DC Drano has since been banned by Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> DC Drano is the moniker for Rogan O'Hanley. He is a uh, grifter on Instagram and Twitter who derives most of his power from finding someone, A, shifting blame away from the major structural issues, but also always making it seem as if the mainstream media is against him and his ilk. And when we say things are against him and his ilk, it always seems to be that no matter what happens, he is the victim of the situation. What is he a victim of? So his victimization is about his speech, or so to speak. D.C. Drano, Reagan O'Hanley, says he's an attorney. Uh, there's, I cannot find too much evidence of any trials he may have worked in. But he represents a type of authority in far-right spaces that allows him to kind of explain how things are going as far as victimhood would be. And what they're fighting for is their ability to speak freely and dangerously anytime they want without consequence. At this point, we're pretty aware that words have consequences. So the, uh, how do we get to this? How do we get to the point where somebody, not somebody, but some many, are making a fair amount of living on Instagram, Twitter, and social media with this grift, this victimhood grift? Over the last half decade, these digital grifters have been emboldened, emboldened empowered, and enabled by the outcome of all this, Trump who on numerous occasions told his audience that no president has ever been treated worse by the media. He actually said this at a uh, U.S. cadet uh, graduation ceremony because Trump re it required himself to consistently make it about himself. But what does it mean to be victimized by media? Like that's an interesting concept. So to, what we're going to talk about over the next three episodes is really this change and this shift and this, this standpoint that has emerged over the last decade that really Trump is just a, a moment of or a four-year blip of, but is the culmination and perhaps peak of this moment. And as it tips away from that peak, we're looking at a vacuum of people seeking to feel fulfill that ultimate grift, that, that peak presidency. In 2020 and 2021, we actually got to see the ultimate peak of what happens because literally people storm the Capitol, not for more healthcare, not for civic rights, but to keep a, a president whose biggest gripe was that he wasn't allowed to be racist on television. <laughs> so it, it's really fantastic to kind of analyze that this isn't something that just kind of appears. And I think as much as we normalize poor behavior, we kind of have to look at all the steps that took us to this place. So I think we're going to talk about that because I'd love to get to, I think, the three main flashpoints that occurred over the last three years, and each of them accelerated each time they accelerated increasingly dangerously into spaces of proper behavior, uh, speech, rights, 
privacy, so forth, and then into the point where we're basically amplifying danger. So for, for example, I'm gonna, we're going to be talking about the steps that led up to the Brett Kavanaugh trial, to the Covington High School incident, to Kyle Rittenhouse being venerated by uh, the far right, a uh, young man who has allegedly killed two people and has somehow skipped around away from major jail time. It's part one, history. <laughs> um, so this doesn't start in 2016 or 2015. This doesn't start with Pepe the Frog. This doesn't start with Trump descending his golden escalator. This starts in the mid-aughts around the time that social media was born. It's extremely easy for all of us to think, well, it has to be social media as the cause. It has to be that since it co-aligns with these major moments that today we actually see the outcome of these things. But I think that's just too easy. Social media itself, when born, wasn't given any rules. It wasn't really given any concept of formal uh, construct. Social media is a digital platform, uh, many digital platforms that allow people to communicate, but needs a profit model. So the profit model being an undecided or unknown place kind of had to seek out the users that were already figuring out how the profit models worked. And in those profit models was attention. So you have to keep attention on the screen. One of the best ways to keep attention is by amplifying or acknowledging populism. And in this case, I mean populism like, um, I mean, populism at its core root is really the amplification of the common person. So common people become powerful through popular movements. That's literally what populism is. And it just so happens that digital technology allows people, and in particular politicians, uh, many of whom are of the populist elk, to reach an aesthetic closeness or an aesthetic production of closeness to the people. By the very definition of the technology, you're holding it in your hand. So you feel like your interactions are truly with the other person or the authority figure. I agree with that. I think when we talk about proximity, closeness, we talk about relation relationality, like how we, uh, how are these things relatable? Like, how are these people relatable? How do they seem like us? And unlike, and unlike on television, where there is an established expectation, or at least many gates that make a presentation seem far away, you're interacting and engaging with a politician or an authority figure in the same way that you're talking to your friend on FaceTime or text message. So the actual means of interaction with the technology itself helps to create an environment that favors populism. Yes, perfect. So that is it, the leveling aspect, right? So there has to be a period of time when the leveling of elitism has made it to the place where we all share a common experience. That I think is a really important and un underlooked space where people, uh, an overlooked space that people don't really recognize that when we level the playing field where celebrities, politicians, and the populace can all occupy the same space, that had to be born upon a framework that occurred previously. So I'm going to tell a, a quick story of that transitional moment. There was a moment in the early or the mid-aughts that kind of gave us that ability to understand how we shifted into this. And that era was the peak of reality television. I think that is the moment that we have to really look at because the structure of reality television has basically enforced how social media's profit models would operate in the years to come. And while reality television became a format that we just take for granted at this moment, back in 2005 was pretty new at that moment. 
And these are shows like The Real World and The Hills. Correct. So The Hills is a great concept here. So let's let's talk about just a little bit of history of the reality television field. The first reality television show was in 1987. <laughs> That's most people don't realize that the very first show was Cops. And Cops emerged because of the writer's strike in 1987. And when the unions realized they didn't need writers to produce media without a union, they started looking towards the public. And in that case, they looked for people who were already perpetrators. So it was already the attention economy. And they put cameras out in the streets and they recorded reality and made it into a show. The next big boom happened in the 1990s. And the 1990s presented us with constructed reality shows, a new type of genre, what we would call nonfiction drama or uh, constructed uh, nonfiction. You know, it's like they're there, but they're also in a format that is more usable, previous formats, a game show. They're usually in the game show format, which means some way or another, there's a way for the the numbers to dwindle down or reduce. So the attention is always on this competitive nature that comes with it. And in the 1990s, there was Real World, Road Rules, and a few others that were all cable programming. And Real World wasn't a game show, but it wasn't a documentary either. It pitted regular strangers who lived together into a house. And by the third or fourth season, people started losing interest in it. It was just like, okay, we're just watching people we know. That was until the producers, the actual people who made the show, kind of started influencing the outcome of the programming. They started putting their finger on the scales. And I remember one, they left a note, a constructed note on the floor that caused drama. This brought tons of attention to MTV and a lot of these reality programming. It was a new type of genre, this new excitement. This could be you. I remember being in high school and people were literally filling out forms to try to get on Real World. None of them succeeded, but people wanted to be part of it. They they actually wanted to be on reality TV. So Josh, how many reality shows do you think existed in the year 2000? Oh, um, I'm going to say 24. That's it. Decent guess, completely wrong, but decent. It's, uh, <laughs> it's five. <laughs> it was there was five. There was five reality shows. There it was very very few. Uh, just to give you a, a good contrast to 2017, which is the last time I think I have a good number. How many reality shows were in 2017? Oh, that has to be let's say let's say 80 let's say 86. Again, way off. Uh, it was in the high 300s, around 384. <laughs> so that was uh, there was a fair amount of reality TV, and it kind of makes up almost one third of the television production industry at this at this point, at this current moment. What was the shift? The shift occurred in 2001. In 2001, reality TV crossed the boundaries from cable to network, and that was in the show Survivor. A man named Mark Burnett, a producer, knew the model knew that this method of populism and knew this method of amplifying the regular person into public space was a winning combination. And Survivor was a game show format and it was to outwit, outplay, outlast. So it was a game show format and it was designed to turn just people into people who would survive on an island. Henry Jenkins mentions this. This is really one of our biggest first transmedia moments in internet history. This is pre-social media. Now, okay, I'll give it a little leeway. There was social media. LiveJournal was out. Zanga was out. Uh, MySpace was at its burgeoning stages. But there was no real coherent algorithm that was at play that kind of drove social media's uh, operation. People still cohered in in, uh, forum spaces. And the internet started figuring out where the following year's real world would be played because they were using Google Maps and satellite imagery to figure out 
where they were clearing parts of forests in different places in the world for a television show. So the public started having some sort of say in the way that the outline would work, and the public was also applying to be part of this production. So what we're seeing here is this generalized shift that reality TV would be the populist movement, that its format would be this, let's take the regular person and make them an influencer. And we saw that over many years. We can remember reality stars. We can remember certain names because those people weren't, not, weren't just the ones that outwit, outplayed and outlasted, but they were the ones that created enough of their character for us to have a memory of them. So after I graduated college, I'm going to tell a really brief story about my first inkling that something might not be right. <laughs> in 2005, I was fortunate to start working in television. And I started my job as an assistant editor uh, at a small post-production facility. And I was working on a handful of cable television shows, uh, docudramas mostly, mostly nonfiction. And I hadn't really worked on reality, but there was a word going around in 2005. Now there was in the 20s and 30s of, of reality shows out there. And it was a very big part of the industry. And people started saying, if you want to work in reality television, you have to have reality television experience. So it was kind of like this goal for many of my classmates and many of my co-recent graduates. We were like, well, how the hell are we going to work in the industry if we don't have this experience? So it was always like, everyone was like, we have to, we have to try it. Many of my friends still work in reality television. They're really wonderful people and do a really fantastic job. Uh, now, as it's a television format, I think we're well aware of its structure, uh, which we'll get back to in a bit when we talk about wrestling. But I think it's still a very popularized, extra fictionalized or extra real uh, media format. In 2005, two things happened. One, I was given a pitch deck. For the very first time, I was given something that changed my idea of how things would be structured as the history went forward. Somebody handed us a tape, uh, a bunch of reality tape of a story from Appalachia. And it was sad. I was asked to cut a melt reel. And a melt reel is basically you take the best parts and you put them together. And the idea was that they were going to take this melt reel and they were going to hand it off to another production company to see if there was going to be any funding to make this reality television show happen. And the show was about these very, very poor people from Appalachia, Western Virginia. And it was sad footage. It was about this um, very overweight woman sitting next to her very skinny and toothless husband. And as they sat there, um, she was explaining how much she loves him and that the, the choke marks on her neck were because of his love for her. And I couldn't bear to see this footage because I was like, are we, what are we doing? Is this, a, is this supposed to be talking about the dangers of the opioid crisis that is now burgeoning in the Appalachian areas? Are we talking about obesity as a problem of, that faces Americans? Or are we talking about how to look at these people like they're animals? And I couldn't get that we, as producers, started thinking of these people as objects, that they were something to, of a story to be told. But on the other hand, I started thinking about how these people had willingly been recorded because reality television had given them the concept that they too can be famous. That's their out to them. That's their way to be seen, not just in society, but as visible to a public that really they either feel like they lack a certain kind of respect or that they have themselves become invisible. 100%. Many people all over the United States and potentially the world had started seeing reality TV is exactly what you said, a way of telling their stories to the public. It was now accessible. The gatekeeping 
of the formal gatekeeping was starting to crumble because people traditionally, even today, you can't have an idea and just put it on television. You have to go through the many steps, an agent, a manager, a writer, director, a package, a studio, a distributor. And that only mentions one-tenth of one-tenth of all the things necessary to get your show into people's living rooms. But reality TV meant that if you were willing to just slightly debase yourself, just on camera, perhaps a producer might do that for you. I finally got the chance to work on reality TV later in 2005. I worked for a small production for MTVU, MTV's college channel. And MTV's college channel had these very short webisodes, um, almost what we would call them today. They were reality TV, but they were shorter form. So they weren't like 22 minute clock episodes. They were like half that time and designed specifically to kind of be in between music videos, because at the time MTV was kind of like MTVU was the college station that really was playing music videos all the time. It was really one of the last places. And in between those shows, they would jam in these little neat productions. From August through October in 2005, I flew somewhere between 60 and 80,000 miles as we shot this reality show. And it was about three college couples who went to six different schools and can only keep in contact via text messaging. And yes, that's our main mode of communication today is text messaging. But at the time, on a flip phone, it was disastrous. <laughs> so, so it was clicking, clicking a button three times to get to the letter you want. Oh my gosh. Can you remember T9 typing? Like you were like tap, tap, tap. And then you would hope that it autofilled properly. And man, it was both a time to remember and be like, oh, I wish we had that back. And a time to say, geez, what? I don't even know how we even communicated at that point. <laughs> Just that amount of typing. Remember how fast people could get at it? Oh God. <laughs> so these college couples, we went to all over the US and I remember doing something that I didn't enjoy doing in Texas. One of our young contestants, um, we manipulated him fairly bad. Um, he was a nice man and his uh, girlfriend went to school in across the country in North Carolina. And we went out of our way to show him in a light that maybe he shouldn't have been seen in. We made him more of a, a womanizer because that was what the script called for. And for those of you who don't know this, uh, reality shows are written well in advance. The producers then have to find the cast members. That's a casting director. The casting director fulfills the roles of the script. They are still normal people. And the producers kind of drive the plot line so it fills in the script that was already pre-written. The script obviously changes in real time, but it is pre-designed. So we had to fulfill this role, this, this young man who we cast because we thought he was a certain way. And he turned out to not be that way, but the script couldn't be changed that drastically. So we went and made him that way. And I kept feeling this odd feeling that maybe we hadn't really been watching reality TV. We'd been watching a method of control that was entertaining to people. And it sickened me. And I was like, well, shit. <laughs> I went to my, I was an associate producer at the time. And I was, that that means I, I held many, I wore many hats on these sets. I was the boom operator sometimes. I carried the binder a lot of times. I was camera B a lot of times. And on one episode, I remember watching one of these young contestants. I watched, we were on, a, on one of the shoots and we unfortunately saw one of the contestants, not the same one I talked about, cheating on the contestant from California. And I note the word I'm using here too. I'm calling them contestants because it is a game show. They had to win. Uh, they, those who were able to not communicate via phone for months were the ones who would get a trip to, I think, Disney, but I don't remember any longer. Um, we, when watching this, we had to return and lie to the other contestant 
we couldn't tell him anything about how his girlfriend was acting in, on camera in another place. She may have been playing up to the camera on certain occasions too, because how cool is it that you're in college and there's a camera crew from MTV following you around? So that feeling too, remember, is going to come back. The idea that the on camera changes who we are. And I'll, I'll actually get to a moment of that in a second. Finally, the moment that changed everything for me and made me realize maybe I didn't want to be in reality television anymore was towards one of the last episodes when one of the young contestants, another one, said to me after asking him, oh, uh, how do you feel about X? And he said, what do you want me to say? And I said, we don't tell you what to say. You say it. And he said, but if I were to say what you want to hear, what would it be? And I teased the line to him and he said it perfectly. He won the contest. Oh. <laughs> so it turned out that if you learn that manipulation is part of this, that the structure itself tells you how to be, you learn how to play the game because it's all a media game. It's all media manipulation. It's all part of the system. And I went to my segment producer and said, don't, don't, don't you feel weird about this? Don't you feel like this is something that could be a problem? And he said, well, they signed the contract. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's in other words we're just doing what we're told <laughs> so to me that obviously is somebody who is i wasn't really a great undergraduate student by any means uh this isn't a secret at all those who have taken my classes and those who know me know that i i became an academic after this <laughs> um i returned to school and started studying um new media that was my first steps and this shift happens at the beginning of web television. Part two, web television. In 2005 through 2009, YouTube had become the main place to go to see alternative media. And woo, was it alternative media. <laughs> and at first, it was just a lot of copy and pasting from copyrighted material. And that got YouTube in a lot of trouble. They were facing, I believe, a several million, uh, potentially several billion dollar lawsuit for copyright infringement. By 2006, uh, Google had foreseen that YouTube might very well be the place where people are going to be utilizing media because they saw it as much as we, they saw it as a media house. At that point, Google had something called Google Video, but they saw it as a search engine. They were like, oh, this could be the epicenter of everything multimedia where they were the epicenter of everything textual and so forth. You do, remember this, Google could have made their own YouTube, but remember they weren't buying YouTube's technology. They were buying YouTube's community. People had already meant, went to YouTube as the place where they were going to communicate with one another, where they were going to share media, and they were going to create their own type of social media that was video-based. It's important to remember this because before YouTube, there were about, and this is, this is an urban legend, but it's been cited so many times, I'm going to repeat it. There were 17,000 YouTubes before YouTube. That's how many sites there were to upload video onto the web. Why did YouTube work? Their algorithm did not yet exist at that point, but what did exist were curators, people who would pick media that they liked, that people were uploading and put it on the front screen, the most valuable today, the most valuable real estate on the internet. That's similar to Instagram's model of the for, or of its original explore page. That's 100% right. So a lot of these media mimic previous media because they know that the model works. In 2006, Without getting to vloggers or personalities in this specific one, we're going to spend more time talking about the structure before we talk about the influencers. That's what we'll get to again when we return to influencers that come from the mid-aughts. Let's talk about the structure of web television and how that's different from gatekeeping in general. 
when people started realizing that mainstream or television had become more exclusive, what we call now prestige TV, they recognized that their ability to make TV was getting far and more distant from their ability to actually have access to it. We were in the era of Lost, uh, the end of Sopranos, um, Entourage, and so forth. These were prestige TV, TV that was like not only not on cable or network, but on subscription television. So it was like television that was really, really, really elite. And later you're going to see Mad Men and Breaking Bad and so forth. And these are prestige television that were so good and so watchable that people would see them not just as their typical soap opera model, but something that was like really, really desirable as like a fandom that was beyond the idea of like standing or fanning, but actually like, I want to know how the story unfolds. So it created at that moment, a series of creators, which we'll call them in the term we use today, creators who felt like they were disenfranchised from what they wanted to do. I went into television school. I knew that I would work on television, but I also had a realistic mindset that I really wouldn't have the ability to make stories for some time. I would have the ability to work on someone else's stories, but I wouldn't have the ability to make it. But imagine going to school, spending a lot of money and saying, I want to tell stories. And you get out into the field and, well, there's no way to tell these stories. <laughs> There's just nowhere to put them because the gatekeeping had become so strong that it was almost impossible to get it there. Or you could just make your TV show with your friends and put it on YouTube. That's it. There was no many steps, many structural strongholds. There was just, okay, let's make TV. And suddenly, just like reality television, those that historically were not able to be seen are suddenly front and center in this new digital environment. It's 100%. Web series became that thing. Now, here's where things take a little bit of a weird turn in the history of all of this. YouTube is supposed to be, or in concept, supposed to be a space for creators who are typically marginalized from creator spaces, i.e. those who would not just not be allowed to make prestige television, but just not allowed to make television. <laughs> These are black, brown, indigenous people, people of color, uh, disabled folk that can't actually make TV because the systems at play already private prioritized uh, the white elite creators. And so that's what YouTube was kind of there to, to do was like, okay, well now you can create, you can make it. So everyone started making at the same time, but YouTube at this moment made an error that I think we live in to this day. The shows that were picked to be on the front screen of YouTube were the same ones that we would see on television. At the time we saw shows like Chad Vader, Day Ship Manager, which is about Darth Vader's weird cousin. Um, who runs a, who manages a supermarket, who is a uh, lowly, not so great hero. We had The Guild, which was about Felicia Day's uh, somewhat semi-autobiographical story about uh, her being the leader of a guild in World of Warcraft and becoming addicted to it and then meeting them in real life. And we had We Need Girlfriends, which I think is one of the most important moments in YouTube history because We Need Girlfriends is literally a show that later in 2008, Stephanie Rosenblum would write called The Beta Male's Charms. Now, for those of you listening, <laughs> that's a charged headline <laughs> because in 2008, the term The Beta Male's Charms referenced the difference between the alpha and beta male. Now these words are highly stigmatized and problematic and honestly make no sense. Uh, you could listen to tons of podcasts and do a, a bunch of your uh, research that are out there. And you could see that they're, even the concept of beta, uh, excuse me, the concept of alpha males that comes from the idea of an alpha wolf isn't just debunked at this point. It doesn't even exist. Um, so all these terminologies were just made kind of in terms of like reactionary stances. 
So the beta male is a reaction to the alpha male. The alpha male is created. The alpha male was invented because it was somebody who was kind of like the main character of Entourage. He had his own little troop. He was the leader. And he had this stance. Tony Soprano, Walter White, Don Draper. Notice they're all the same type of structural person. They're the anti-hero, but they're alpha. So online, the story that people wanted to watch were about the beta males. And again, I'm using this term because of the term in, in the time, but it's not the term that we would use today in any way. Stephanie Rosenblum writes in 2008 in the article, The Beta Male's Charms. So the refrain of the New York City beta male, that gentle, endearingly awkward, self-conscious soul for whom love is a battlefield. Like other buzz-generating web content, the series has attracted mainstream movers and shakers. Greg Daniels, executive producer of the American version of The Office, and Dennis Erdman, producer of the television shows The Three Grew Up With, like Saved by the Bell, so the creators. Until now, we need girlfriends which underscores that women are not only the ones to cultivate meaningful relationships with each other or to be emotionally pulverized by the opposite sex, has been filmed, filmed in the streets of Astoria. Do you hear the non-critical approach here? It's not Stephanie Rosenblum's fault by any means to be uncritical of this media. This was 2008 mindset. But we could see at this point the burgeoning beginning of what would eventually become the white male victim. <laughs> that itself is a structural invention that was made up and it was made up by accident or perhaps by need of many platforms who recognized that they weren't making web television. They were making television on the web. They were just perpetuating old media systems in new media spaces. That type of thing is what we have to keep in mind as we start explaining how somebody like DC Drano can literally have the influence over major people around him and participate in the energy that causes somebody to want to invade the U.S. Capitol. He's exploiting the systems that had been developed for over a decade to a reach of literally millions of his followers. Absolutely. It's by design. These things aren't unconnected. All of these things are connected, and it isn't a reach to say that these become the tendrils or potentially the roots of everything that we live in today. I'm going to jump slightly ahead here to early 20-teens. So in the time where social media, reality television, and today's structures, now a decade out from 2011, started to concretize. It was sort of like the molten earth becoming solid. The problem with that is we've kept those structures in place until today. And now in 2021 and 2020, we're actually starting to say, hey, maybe the systems aren't working at all and isn't just working not properly, but they're just not working. The the idea of the, the marginalized voice being on YouTube was excluded still in its early days. And instead of confronting it in its early days and saying, oh, well, these are the, we should really say, okay, we have to have more diverse voices in YouTube. Instead of saying that, we just went forward. And what I mean by we went forward was a story that Andrew Morantz writes in 2014 about a young man who in early 20 teens developed what we know now as clickbait. And this story, I'm just going to briefly touch on because I think it's really important for us to read Andrew Morantz's book. Uh, anti-social, online extremists, techno-utopians, and the hijacking of the American conversation, which is his kind of summation of the gonzo journalism approach he took of following a lot of these uh, far-right actors and different uh, personalities in digital spaces, everyone from uh, Andrew Arnheimer, uh, Weave, to uh, people who attended the Deplorable. But this story is one of the stories that he starts his book with that kind of explains how we got to now. And he does an article in The New Yorker titled The Virologist. And it's about the king of clickbait, which is its other name. And it's about a young man named Emerson Sparts. 
an internet media entrepreneur is what he calls him. He was Emerson. He writes about this time that Emerson Sparks was asked uh, to discuss ways that people are using technology that can build movements and create change. Now, this is just after the Arab Spring. Okay, so there's big change in the internet that we thought were going to be ways which showed that populism can be a force for good and create like literal revolution. But this was his response. This is not Sparks' specialty. Sparks says, I basically have only one speech. It's about how to make things go viral. I have personal preferences about how I would want those principles to be applied, but in practice, they can be used for pretty much anything. And that's what's amazing about the structure that was put in place about clickbait. Uh, they can be used for pretty much anything. So the attention economy became a new type. It wasn't just reality television and web television and the looking at what we used to look at, but just in new places, but it actually became a model. It became a model of usage. In other words, find a way to reproduce where people are imagining an enemy and fulfill that with anything. So you could do that by creating clickbait. And many of us know how clickbait works. You know, these are the, the nine things you wouldn't know about or... Uh, six ways in which you might feel funny about Harry Potter. It always leads you into the click to make you read an article that's pretty much just regurgitated material from a previous article. I think many of us can find a dozen iterations of every type of BuzzFeed article at this point, but that is, and I mean BuzzFeed as in the community, not the BuzzFeed news. Um, and I think that is something that we see as like a part, po possible profit model of the populist. So now let's look at the stages. First, reality TV, the subject, can now be somebody who is seen on screen. They could bypass the gatekeepers and become an influencer to the public. Two, a creator can create visual media that can create ways of, of making television that they felt they were excluded from and put it on there. Three, people can now write or access material as a just a common person into community spaces and publish publish their material into public spaces and get millions of views. As many people have said many times before on many old podcasts, there's nothing like putting something out there and getting a viral hit. It's a weird, joyous dopamine that is really hard to explain to anyone because you're really just making content. The content minds uh, constantly goes into this this nice subject all the time, and I think that's a really good podcast to listen to about it. And that's interesting in a way because what we see is just anybody, the people, anybody making content. But Josh, back to your point, you would mention earlier about the leveling, the ability for everyone to be in that same shared space. And what we started seeing was My Damn Channel and Funny or Die. Will Ferrell had purchased a web television channel and Zach Galifianakis started making Between Two Ferns. But at this exact moment, a whole series of events would occur in the year 2014 that would change the way we live forever. <laughs> Gamergate is the tentpole of the horror that encompasses a whole lot of other things. <laughs> so inside this tent was the anger and latent racism that had been following Obama. The response to that of online social media still being an exclusive space and now concretizing towards profit models that were still excluding. Mark Burnett had really achieved amazing success in making Donald Trump a character using a show called The Apprentice. And all of these things all at once were causing us to start seeing that we had now recreated the large tox environment of mainstream media, but now in disparate all over the place, all over the internet, in many ways that were dangerous but unforeseen at that moment because 
when we look at the way things work in the US, we other people that aren't US, but we don't look at self, we aren't self-reflexive to see that these structural issues are problematic. So this little bit, we're going to end with two little really important things. I just want to sum up before we go into part two here, but it's about how we got to the point where uh, mainstream media became a pejorative term and how that became the enemy of a lot of these influencers. What happened? How did that occur that the system itself became the ultra enemy of it when the system itself built these models in the first place? In a really fantastic article in 2016 by Jeremy Gordon uh, in the notebook, Is Everything Wrestling? He writes, what WWE does care about is keeping control of the way people experience wrestling. Preferably not as the disreputable, carny spectacle it once was, but as a family-friendly 21st century entertainment. When recapping re wrestling history, it can completely elide the messier incidents. The sex scandals, shady deaths, and neglected industries, drug abuse, and more. The audience, meanwhile, knows what the WWE cares about, giving it enough knowledge of wrestling's inner workings to analyze each narrative, not just through its world logic, but by considering external forces. Parsing both those layers, the behavior and the meta-behavior, the story told and the story of why it's being told that way can be an entertainment in its own right. And speculating on creative decisions has long been a fascination for wrestling fans. This is a metaphor for the way that the internet works, because here you get to see the exploration of both layers, the behavior and the meta behavior. These two things that could be commodified. So there is the on-screen behavior, and then there is the little a author behavior. There is the creator and the created. And these types of things start becoming inseparable as the influencer networks that were being developed in Instagram at that exact same moment started creating people as heroes once again. So now we've returned to this alpha structure, which again is a pejorative term, and it's in response or in reaction to mainstream media. And that's amazing because when we start thinking about the meta text of that, is that all of this is just a reaction to the reaction that had occurred a, year, a decade earlier. In the following episodes, we'll get to the influencers that were born of YouTube. But I just want to close this with a little quote before we get to how everything fell apart in an article that kind of explains it pretty well. After the election of Donald Trump, Kurt Anderson writes in The Atlantic how America lost its mind. And he writes in 2017, the word mainstream has recently become a pejorative shorthand for bias, lies, oppression by the elites. Yet the institutions and forces that once kept us from indulging the flagrantly untrue or absurd, media, academia, government, corporate America, professional associations, respectable opinion in the aggregate, have enabled and encouraged every species of fantasy over the past few decades. Fantastic work to explain that just nine years previous, Sarah Palin stood up on stage and decried that the mainstream media was the lamestream media. And she created a new form of populism that would be kind of embedded into this that vilified the mainstream systems, but at the same time amplified how people can use new media in the same format of mainstream media to amplify anything they'd like. So they combined early profit models with clickbait, with influence, and the vilification to say, I am being marginalized by mainstream media to their millions and millions of fans. Thanks for joining us for the first of our special three-part Media Martyrs series. For full show notes of today's episode, you can visit digitalvoid.media and click the episode page. 
While you're there, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform now. <laughs>